scripture lesson today is taken from the gospel according to John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. On the, eve, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas, an Thomas answered him, my, <clears throat> my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. time before we dive in. Jesus, we are thankful for this word that you have given to us, and we pray that your spirit would be in this place. Lord, if we are slow to listen, would you make us quick to hear? Uh, would you speak through this text? Uh, would it not be my words, but your words? Uh, and would you encourage us? It's all Jesus in your name. Amen. So if you're visiting with us here this morning, we're continuing in a series that we've been in uh, where we are following the six stories in the Bible that are happening after Jesus's resurrection. And what we're seeing is that Jesus is appearing to different people bodily and uh, teaching them something. And we are asking the questions, uh, the same questions that the disciples are asking in this passage. They're asking, what does it look like? to live in a post-resurrection world as we await Jesus's return. See, I think if we're honest with ourselves, living with trust in Jesus in a post-resurrection world is challenging because we struggle with doubt. You may be here visiting with us this morning and the concept of Christianity may be new to you and you have your own questions, fair questions, questions that we won't get to today, but I would encourage you to listen to some uh, sermons we had in the past like, how in the world did someone raise from the dead, right? You may be here and you've been going to church for a long time, and you have your own doubts. I remember as an 18-year-old college student on the campus coming to my pastor at the time and telling him with shaking hands, sometimes I don't know if what the Bible says is true, 
am I a Christian? And he patiently pointed me to the Psalms, said, have you heard of the guy named David? Have you read those? See, as John has spoken about, believing in a bodily resurrected Jesus in and of itself is challenging in an empirically driven society. The biblical claim of miracles may just engage our doubt, but we also doubt because it's just hard to see Jesus' victory over death in this life sometimes. We mourn the death of our friends and our family, and we ask the question, how has Jesus truly defeated death? We see injustice in the world, and we struggle to trust that Jesus has truly defeated death. So the resurrection is not just something that we celebrate once a year. It's not just something that we look back to, but it's something that actually informs our whole lives now. This question, how do we live in a post-resurrection world, I would argue, is one of the most important and practical questions that we can actually ask. A former pastor of mine put it this way in a lecture that he gave in seminary called Redeeming Thomas. He says, in Jesus' bodily resurrection, we view with Thomas the very meaning of the resurrection. The resurrection is at one and the same time the hope of the believer and the horizon in which he or she must understand all things, for it is the direction in which the believer is traveling. Resurrection. He concludes, faith means having something to which we can confidently look forward, to have a goal. The central call to Christianity, therefore, is to live the future right now. That's the central call. And in this passage, we're going to see Thomas is being invited to live a life of trust in light of the resurrection. And this invitation from Jesus is also for us today. What I want us to see very briefly is that because Christ is risen, we're invited to trust him. Because Christ is risen, we're invited to trust him. And we're going to spend the majority of our time today reflecting on verses 24 through 31, but it's important to start in 19 through 23 to get a sense of the context. So if you remember the story, Jesus has just died. He's resurrected from the dead, but these disciples don't know that yet. And he's appearing to the disciples and reminding them and encouraging them to continue in their, commit, their continued mission, right? This passage implies that Jesus appears to the ten. That is that Judas isn't there and Thomas isn't there. We don't know why Thomas isn't present, but providentially he's not in the room. And we know the context. In verse 18, it says the doors were locked for fears of the Jews. They were hiding for fear of their lives. And so they themselves must have been asking the question, what do we do? Our Savior has died. The man who we followed our whole life isn't here, right? How do we live now? They must have had their own doubts. And when Jesus appears, we see a few notable things. First, his first words in verse 19, did you see them? He enters uh, saying, peace be with you. His posture towards the disciples in the very beginning of the passage is fundamentally one of care. And in these words, we see his first teaching to the ten of what it means to live in light of the resurrection. That a life with a resurrected Jesus is actually a life where peace is possible. He even shows them his hands to show it is really him. And we see in verse 20 that they are glad. See, the work of Jesus was not in vain. And as Paul encourages the church in 1 Corinthians 15, and Jesus encourages the disciples here, their labor is not in vain in a post-resurrection world. Their work with Jesus throughout his life has not ended. And secondly, we see that Jesus reminds them of their mission in verses 21 through 23. And this is not a new mission. J 
Jesus has said these words in different ways many times. He says in verse 21, as the Father has sent me, which they know why he has, even so I am sending you. See, Jesus has been telling them their mission his entire life, to share the good news of the gospel, to love their neighbors in the city, and to live a life of obedience to the Father. And rather, he reminds them that their lives post-resurrection actually continue that work, that that work has not ended. And in verse 22, he reminds them that the Spirit is with them as they look toward Pentecost. And he reminds them that some are going to accept the gospel and be forgiven, and some are not, and will not receive forgiveness in verse 23. And in short, we don't have too much time to dwell on that today, but the point is that as they continue their work, they just need to keep sharing and should not be surprised when sometimes seed falls on rocky ground, right? So Jesus appears to the disciples. He encourages them. He enters with a posture of peace. He shows that he's there. But then we turn to verses 24 through 25, and we see that Thomas shows up on the scene, and Jesus shows up again. See, the disciples tell Thomas that Jesus has risen, but he struggles to believe. The disciples have just been told to keep laboring in the work of the Lord, and Thomas himself is struggling to keep laboring because he is struggling to see the resurrected Lord. Sometimes we're struggling to keep laboring because we haven't seen the resurrected Lord. See, can't we identify with Thomas? So the question is, how can we, like Thomas, continue to trust Jesus and labor for the glory of God in a post-resurrection world? How is that possible? But in order to understand this passage, I actually think we're going to have to challenge some assumptions. So I want to slow down and ask you to bear with me here for a second. For some of us, this passage might be completely new to us. We might be reading it for the first time. For others of us who grew up in the church or have looked at this passage multiple times, we tend to think of Thomas as one of those guys in the Bible that we do not want to be. I've heard sermons and talks about Thomas as the danger of modern rationalism or radical skepticism. They're all titled something around doubting Thomas. I remember growing up in a particular setting where I was uh, taught this passage, and the message of the passage was doubting is dangerous. I was showed a video at the end of that uh, in a in a specific setting uh, where uh, it was showing as a 17-year-old the dangers of professors in college and how we need to beware their skepticism. And the the crux of what was being said, not in these exact words, but we might have felt it in different settings, is that those who ask questions have have at the heart of it a malicious motive. And friends, if this is your story with this text, I want to just slow down and say this is not at all what is going on in this text. This is not at all what is going on in this text. One pastor of mine in college um, exemplified what was going on through two paintings that I think is really helpful. Uh, Unfortunately, you can look those up later. I don't have those for you, but I'm going to describe them to you. There are two famous paintings of Thomas in this story. One is a painting by Karl Bloch, and it's entitled Doubting Thomas. And if you were to close your eyes or just envision with me for a second, here's the painting. In this painting, you see Jesus much taller and higher in stature than Thomas. Thomas is at his knees. He can't even look into the eyes of Jesus. He looks away in shame. Jesus' face is one of indignation. He is disappointed in Thomas. His wounds, which are present, are almost facing away from Thomas 
as Thomas, with his eyes closed, tries to find his way. The disciples stand in the background of the picture, clearly at the side of Jesus, but not at the side of Thomas. That's one picture. The second picture is a painting by Caravaggio called The Incredulity of Thomas. In this painting, we see a very different picture. Jesus stands with a face of invitation, looking into the eyes of Thomas as Thomas looks with curiosity at his wounds. Jesus' wounds are not just mere scars. There's actually a gash in his stomach, and Thomas is reaching inside of it. He's reaching at his wounds. And the disciples stand not against Thomas, but with Thomas, peering into Jesus, looking for him. These are two very different paintings. And it's worth asking the question as we read this text, who is the real Thomas? And who is the real Jesus? What's happening here? And so we need to examine the nature of Thomas's statement. Uh, you can ask me, uh, I talked about this with my students and I showed them the pictures. You can ask me for them after. Uh, I think that we sometimes see what's really going on in life through the eyes of children. Children are sometimes more honest about what's going on inside of them than we are as adults. So I'm going to let you into two uh, paintings I did as a child. Um, the first one uh, is more of a making fun of myself thing uh, to portray the honesty. Uh, I went home a few Thanksgivings ago and I was going through the cabinets of my home. My mom was trying to throw out things and so I was looking through all my elementary art projects. And in one of them, the project was what are you thankful for? It was a big Thanksgiving dish and you just wrote what you were thankful for. And as a, I don't know, six, seven year old, I was very clear what I was thankful for. I was thankful for bats and whales. And so that's what I wrote. I drew some pictures and it was great. The second painting, I think, uh, more points to what's going on in this text. The, the project was called Emotions Are Important. And each phrase would say, I am sad when, I am happy when, so on and so forth. Uh, so I said, um, I'm sad when someone kidnapped me. I don't know what was going on. I wasn't in therapy yet. Uh, but uh, the next statement uh, said, I am happy when I am safe. I think we're happy when we're safe. We truly want safety in this life, don't we? Yet we live in a world where we have experienced pain, sometimes from trusting other people. Using the language of the counselor Dan Allender, in a world of sin, we have wounded our hearts. And some of our hearts are more wounded than others today. And his words accurately describe why it is so difficult for us to trust. Because trust, he says, sometimes feels foolish. And as we look at Thomas, I would argue that we do not see a man in this text with a malicious motive, but a man's question of grief for his friend who has just died, a crucified death. And he is asking the question, is it really possible to have life with all this death? Is it really possible to have a resurrected Lord? See, we too, like Thomas, have been wounded in our own ways. We struggle to trust. And for many of us, this is not where doubt ends, but it is where it begins. And we see in verses 24 through 25, Thomas showing us this in his struggle to believe. What is Thomas's statement? See, he doesn't simply ask for a risen Jesus, 
but he asks for a Jesus who has risen with wounds. He wants to see the nail marks in Jesus' hands and the spear wound in his side. St. Cyril, an early church pastor, says, I think that the disciple did not so much disbelieve what was told him as much as he was driven to the depths of sorrow. Observe how Thomas does not simply want to see the Lord, but he wants to see the marks of the nails, that is, the wounds in his flesh. Thomas wants to know if it is possible to have life in a world with so much death. And we get this, don't we? Would you or I believe that Jesus had risen? Would that not feel like foolishness? The gospel is even honest in the epistles that sometimes believing in Jesus will seem foolish. It seems too good to be true. I think it's hard for me personally because a hope like this is incredibly vulnerable. And this passage, I want us to just say one more time, is not telling us to hide our questions. Some of us even hide our questions as a coping mechanism. We outwardly combat other people's questions, or we might be prone, I've been this in my life, to displaying a false piety because we are scared, to, we want to mask our grief. We don't want to deal with it. We need to be a people who ask our questions to this risen Lord because he invites us to ask them. Corporately, we also need to be a people who invite questions. What does it look like to be a place where others can ask questions? So we see Thomas's question is not malicious, it's vulnerable. He's asking the question, how is it possible to have life in a world with so much death? But then we quickly see Jesus's response in verses 27 through 29. And what we see is that Jesus's response is one of invitation, not one of indignation. In verse 27, we see that he hears Thomas's cry, right? Jesus's response exactly answers what he said in a closed room where Jesus was not physically present. That means that he heard everything that Thomas said when he wasn't there, and he still chose to present himself and to speak to him. Do you know this in your life, in maybe a friendship or a marriage or in your family? People who know your darkest moments, and they still show up, and they still love you. God hears your doubts too, and he invites you to know him, to hear him. He still loves you. In verse 27, he not only hears Thomas's cry, but he invites him to touch his wounds. And this is an incredibly tender and gentle thing. This isn't new to his posture. If you remember beforehand, he's always entered the room saying, peace be with you, right? But I think we can take this for granted. This isn't scar bragging. Have you ever done this in your life? I got 30 stitches on my arm, and this was this cool thing when I was in middle school where you'd be like, what's your biggest scar? And you'd be like, oh, yeah, I did this thing. This isn't scar bragging, right? This is vulnerable and intimate. Jesus is asking the disciple to touch his crucified body that has been abused and killed. And we take for granted, I think, that Jesus kept his wounds. He didn't have to do this. He is the God of the universe. He displayed in his earthly ministry time and time again that he had the power to heal. And yet in his resurrected body, he chose to do this as an act of mercy. And he keeps his wounds for us too, as to say, I am still your suffering servant. You are not alone. Thirdly, we see that he invites Thomas to believe in verse 27. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. 
And this invitation is only possible because Jesus has secured his life, just as he has secured yours. That the essence of your faith is not granted because of the power of our belief. But he invites you because he has secured your life, even when sometimes our faith is as small as a mustard seed. And we see in Thomas's response in verse 28, a real statement of faith. He says, my Lord and my God. And what I just want to say is that this statement is both propositional and it's personal, right? It's propositional and that he is truly saying something about who Jesus is. He is his Lord, meaning he rules his life. He will follow him. He will do what is said of him. But he's also his God, that he is the God of the universe, right? But it's also personal because always belief is a childlike faith. Thomas's belief is a childlike faith because trust is always a giving of oneself. Some of you might go hiking regularly in Wisconsin. I remember going on a hiking trip before I went to college and it was a uh, like a week-long thing so I had to spend the night at certain places and along the way one of the most important tools that I could bring was something that would make the water clean so I could drink it. And so I read beforehand that a Sterapin UV ray pen will clean the water. I saw the scientific proof that it would do so, and yet at the same time, stating that scientifically this thing will clean the water is not the same thing as drinking the water, right? Trust is always a giving of oneself. And we see that Thomas's trust is without contingencies. He doesn't say, if you let me see this, or if you give me a comfortable life, or if you give me answers to all my questions, he just says, my Lord and my God. And Thomas ends up devoting his whole life to preaching the gospel as far as India and China, and he was martyred in India for his faith. And so it's worth asking the question, how do we live with this kind of trust? How is that possible? Well, first, I just want to note that we will struggle with doubt in this life because there's sin. We have experienced the pain of this, but there's not going to be doubt in our resurrected life because there's not going to be sin in heaven. Living in light of the resurrection means choosing to live that future now with God. Jesus is asking us to trust him first. So what, why would we trust him? <laughs> well, first off, he's worthy of our trust. This is the Lord who is without sin. Jesus doesn't promise that other people will not sin against us, but he is without it, and he keeps his promises. The response that Jesus gives is also amazing and a reason for our trust. Jesus doesn't say to Thomas, who is grieving the death of his beloved friend, simply God is a plan, although he does. Jesus listens to his grief. Jesus listens to your grief. He suffered for you and he has secured your life. Jesus responds with invitation. And also, this is my Lord and my God and your Lord and your God. We don't need contingencies. What would it look like to trust the risen Lord? Jesus is also inviting us in this passage to not only be a people who trust him, but a community of trust. And this doesn't mean that we won't be hurt by others in this life. It doesn't mean a lack of boundaries and wisdom with others, but Jesus is calling the church as the community of God to be a community characterized by trust in him and invitation to others. 
And we can do this because Jesus is with us now in our pre-resurrection reality by offering us conviction of sin and the wisdom of repentance. See, one of the greatest sadnesses is that the church has not always been this way. We have not always lived as a community of trust. And so rather than exemplifying that, would you imagine with me a community of people who invite others into a friendship so intimate that they would call them family, who are not characterized by their self-worth, but their trust in the suffering servant Jesus, and who do not promise to never hurt one another, but devote themselves to humility and repentance and submit themselves to the consequences of their sins. Let me ask the question, is this not a community that you want to be a part of? This is a community I want to be a part of. And in many ways, this church has been that community. Jesus is calling us to trust him and to be a community of trust. So we see because of the resurrection, Jesus calls us to trust and to become a community who is trustworthy. But as we close, it's important to ask this question. What about us who can't see him? Right? I've often read the Gospels and found myself saying, well, it would be a lot easier if I was one of the twelve. Have you asked that question? What about us who can't see him? Well, in verses 29 through 31, in my opinion, we see some of the most unique and important verses in the entire Bible. You'll often see that uh, we say in Resurrection Prez sometimes that the Bible was written, uh, was not written to us, but it was written for us, right? Meaning that there was an original audience, but we still benefit from the Bible today, right? Well, here, Jesus and John talk to us in verses 29 through 31. Did you see that? Who is the audience in verse 29 when, uh, when the writer says those? Who are those who can't see? That's, that's you. That's me. Right? See, as D.A. Carson writes, Thomas brings the faith to a climax and acts as a bridge for future believers. And what I want us to see uh, as Jesus speaks to us, is first that he pronounces a blessing on you and I. He says, I know that it is hard that you don't get to see these things, but I bless you, I see you. Blessed are those who believe and not see. And in verse 31, the Apostle John highlights the purpose of this book. He says that these things were written for you so that you might believe and might have life in his name. Do you know that? That Jesus, that God preserved the Bible for you so that in your doubts, you might believe and have life in his name. One of the points of this is this word that I struggle to say, so bear with me. Apostolicity, I can't say that word, whatever. But this was really written by the apostles, right? It matters that the apostles have seen it, that we can trust it. But it's also more than that. See, the point is that Jesus has not forgotten you. He says in verse 29 that you are blessed. And one of those blessings is that we have been given the accounts of the apostles. That in scripture we find testimonies of the resurrected Christ that we can trust. Men and women who are struggling to trust that can give us encouragement. And the promises of God that we can constantly look forward to. That Jesus preserved this for you. D.A. Carson, this is in your, uh, your bulletin. He says, in our darkest times, we struggle to hope, to believe. But the faith-filled person 
is the one who dares to hope in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. Doubting Thomas, no, let us put his, that label aside. From now on, let's call him what he truly is, believing Thomas. Friends, because Christ has risen, we are invited like Thomas to trust him and to invite others with the same tenderness and care of our risen Lord. As we uh, prepare to approach the table in a minute, I want to give you this word of encouragement. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is a catechism used by our denomination, a question is asked. This is the question. Should a Christian who is experiencing doubt come to the Lord's table? And the response is this. The table is for them so that they might be strengthened. Whether you have come here today with great confidence and assurance, or you have come here today with great grief or doubts, Christ has risen. So let's prepare for the table by asking him for the strength to trust him wholly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have preserved these words